Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We've got a great conversation on the way. A couple of things. If you like the show, you can support us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. You can support us by telling a friend, sharing on social media, or you can support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dissident Orthodoxy. I'm Casey Hobbs. Today is a return guest, Stephen Kinzer. Uh, he is has spent more than 20 years working for the New York Times. Most of it is a foreign correspondent. His foreign postings placed him in the center of historic events and at times the line of fire. He has worked on more than five con- or five continents, 50 countries as a journalist over the years. Uh, and we're going to talk about Ukraine and Russia today. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me. Always good to be here. Right on. So let's jump right in. Uh, you've been among a shockingly small cadre of journalists raising questions about the official narrative regarding Russia and Ukraine. Why is there so little dissent? It's a large question. And uh, first of all, I think it's important to define the phenomenon and then try to figure out the reason. So here we are involved in a major military conflict, although we don't have troops on the ground. Uh, And there's a tremendous burst of emotion behind American support for Ukraine. Uh, It's truly remarkable. Uh, The U.S. Congress voted $40 billion dollars in aid to Ukraine, really a massive sum, right after the uh, hostilities began. What was remarkable to me in that vote was that every single Democrat in the House of Representatives and every single Democrat in the U.S. Senate voted for it. There wasn't a single exception. All those uh, peace-loving, anti-war Democrats evaporated. There were dissenters in the Republican Party. They're a minority. But uh, in the Democratic Party, there is no minority that is advocating a more restrained and and balanced foreign policy. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I think uh, most members of Congress realize that their constituents don't really care much about foreign affairs. It sounded like a good thing at the moment. And uh, why not go along with it? You can beat your breast and say you're patriotic. Uh, America is always in search of enemies. And uh, Russia is an ideal one. Don't forget, we've had generations of psychological preparation to see Russia as the bad guy. Uh, And I also think you cannot discount, in the case of Congress, the tremendous influence of the arms industry. Uh, Not only do do the weapons manufacturers maintain a huge cadre of lobbyists on on Capitol Hill, not only do they make contributions to polit- candidates who will then go on to the committees that approve these large weapon systems? But even more pernicious is that when any large uh, weapon system is conceived and developed, the company that does the developing splits up the contract into sort of mini pieces and places them in the districts of all mm-hmm. relevant members of Congress. That means that once you vote to end a wasteful military project, you're putting people out of work in your district. So the military has really, the military weapons industry has really got a stronghold on on Congress. So I think you can explain for relatively crass political reasons, this combination of breastbeating, primitive patriotism, uh, and then uh, great inducements on the financial side. 
But that's enough to explain Congress right. and the political elite. For the American people, who I'm sure still couldn't find Ukraine on a map, yeah. uh, all we know about Ukraine is what we've been told. What else can you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, what we've been told is overwhelmingly one-sided. So really, Americans do not have the basis to make uh, an honest choice or to assess the situation realistically. All information is supposed to support the good versus evil narrative. So here's where I really have a problem. I understand why the political elite in Washington is all on board with this. And I can see why Americans have bought into it, because how could you not? I read the other day that... uh, there's only 9% of Americans who have a favorable opinion of Vladimir Putin. And I was wondering, how can there even be nine right. after every the bombardment you get every day? Uh, so I get that part too. I get, the, I get the Congress and I get the American people. But the press to me is my really biggest disappointment. We are not supposed to transmit official narratives. And that's exactly what the press is doing now. We're beating the same drums that the people in power in Washington are beating. We're not looking skeptically at the official narrative. We're just functioning as stenographers. Really, even in the run-up to the Iraq war, there were a few isolated voices calling for a restrained foreign policy. But now, to ask whether it's really a good idea for the United States to be pouring weapons into an active war zone, whether we have a vital interest in this war, whether we should be sending billions of dollars to a country that has been named as one of the most corrupt in the world uh, every year. Mm -hmm. Just to ask these questions is considered not only uh, indelicate, but almost treasonous. So I really feel that the press is falling down on the job. And it's not just the op-ed pages where you only get one opinion. It's also in the reporting from Ukraine. All of it's coming from one side. So as far as we know, there are tremendous war crimes being committed on one side, and there's nothing but heroism on the other. Now, I've been in war. I can tell you, wherever there's war, there's war crimes. It Mm. comes with the territory. So I would just like to see a more honest reporting, not reporting that's shaped to reinforce a narrative being developed in Washington. Yeah, that flattening, I think you you do a really great uh, job in... um... And you have a piece called Putin and Zelensky's Sinners and Saints, and you lay that out really well. And I'm, um, I guess the follow up question to that is um, I was I was younger and a lot less politically aware um, when we were going into Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I had a sense just for my own moral morality at the time um, that it wasn't a great idea. Um, but like I said, I. I saw very little at the time um, that was pushing back against that. Like you said, there was some, and some paid paid the cost. I'm thinking of um, like a Chris Hedges, um, Phil Donahue, those that had large voices that got silenced at that time. So I'm wondering if you think there's a that this current moment lends itself uh, to that propaganda in a new way, or is this um, is it easier to propagandize the American people right now? It was really remarkable to see how Americans were completely mobilized after 9-11. You know, Mm -hmm. I had a a personal experience that put this in perspective. Um, I had come to the United States after many years as a foreign correspondent. Shortly before 9-11, I returned back to the U.S. 
and I had been living in Turkey. One of the things that I noticed when I was living in Turkey, and I thought that, that really bemused me, was that the government was changing its policy from time to time toward the Kurds. And at certain times, you were, everybody was supposed to hate the Kurds. And there were all these stories in the paper about how evil they were. And the, their leader, he was the murderer of 40,000 and on and on. And everybody hated the Kurds. Then, sometimes the political climate would change. And it would suit the political elite that the Kurdish conflict be calmed down. Pretty soon, everybody was thinking, you know, the Kurds are fine. There's no, no problem with them. And I used to think to myself, boy, these, these Turks, they're like children. They're so easily mm -hmm. led. Then I came home to the United States and 9-11 happened. And I thought, wow, it's not just the Turks. <laughs> it's so easy to mobilize an entire population mm -hmm. through ma manipulation of the media. We're, we're so vulnerable to this. Uh, only certain views are considered acceptable. And as you pointed out, in, in the run-up to the Iraq war, there were a few voices. But it's interesting to look back at what happened to those who thought the invasion was going to go great Mm -hmm. And what happened to those who warned that that wasn't going to happen? All the people who cheered the Iraq war are heaped with honors, are commentators on television now, are considered wise men, and in many cases are promoting the exact war we're involved in now, Ukraine war. Now, before we invaded Iraq, a group of international relations scholars, I think with their own money, paid to buy a one full page ad in the New York Times uh, saying, don't do this. There's a mm -hmm. lot of reasons why the Iraq war is not going to work. Out of that group of about 40, if I remember correctly, the number that got jobs later in Washington uh, administration is zero. None. Wow. All the people that were right are stigmatized mm -hmm. and still considered Wacko birds, as uh, John McCain <laughs> called us. Whereas all those who are wrong are still making policy and are considered the people we're supposed to listen to. There's there's no accountability, and it, it just seems the press continues to give platforms to people who have been proven repeatedly wrong. There is no punishment for being wrong, and there's no limit to the number of times you can be wrong before you're considered to be not a, a wise commentator. Yeah, and it's amazing, especially when we're talking about we're talking right after the official 20th anniversary of the uh, invasion of Iraq. And, and yeah, you get the same is exactly what you said. You get these retrospectives of like, Oh, you know, maybe that wasn't a good idea. And, you know, we learn, we sure learned some lessons and it's even the people that are kind of lambasting the people that got it wrong then are, upholding the official narrative now and not <laughs> refusing to question it. Uh, there's, you know, someone that comes to mind um, that kind of has broken my heart over the past few years, Mehdi Hassan, um, who seemed to have asked really good questions at a time, um, is, yeah, is while condemning the propaganda that led us into Iraq is now participating in, in maligning anyone who questions the the current narrative it's 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 really stunning um especially as as someone that is kind of learning this in real time as a news consumer um okay so i want to ask you about proxy war stuff so in a recent piece uh entitled uh, the incalculable moral cost of proxy wars um you you write this Western leaders are pouring weaponry into Ukraine, mainly because Ukraine is wounding Russia, our geopolitical rival. 
Facing a common enemy, we make a grim bargain. The United States and Europe provide money and weapons, while Ukraine provides the soldiers who fight and die. This deal is part of every proxy war. So I've seen quite a bit of pushback even to the idea that this is a proxy war. Why is this a proxy war um, as you see it? And and what is, I guess, what is the the actual goal um, in waging this from um from the, the the minds that are actually putting this together, I don't think uh, the American security establishment has much particular interest in Ukraine itself, just as it had no interest in Afghanistan itself or Iraq itself. Those are just theaters on which these proxy wars are played out. I can tell you from experience that uh, these are particularly brutal. I I watched a proxy war at, from the front row during the 1980s. I lived in Nicaragua when the Sandinistas were at war with the Contras. But really what it was, was the Cuban-supplied and Soviet-supported army on one side versus the American-supplied army on the other side. Mm -hmm. And who was doing the fighting? Two groups of teenage boys from Nicaragua. It's just what's happening now. We are, in, in Ukraine, we are running through an entire generation of Ukrainian men. We've now been told there's been 120,000 casualties in the Ukrainian army. Every one of these, that's a father, that's a son, that's a brother. Those are lives that are blown apart forever. When people have seen war, like some of us ex-war correspondents, you realize war is the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And to be dragging us into this millennial, millenarian conflict uh, with the idea that all the future of human freedom and the possibility to live decently on Earth is at stake in Ukraine is to create a complete fantasy. And we need to ratchet it down a little. And let's talk about why we're really doing this. The the, our excitement is that we finally have a way to use a battering ram against Russia. We don't want to fight Russia directly, but we want to fight Russia indirectly. Now we have a country that's willing to send its own kids off to die to fight Russia. It's a great deal for us because we are wounding our geopolitical rival, and all we have to do is write the checks. We've got another country willing to supply the dead people. That country is destroyed now for at least a generation. And we're not even talking about what's happening to the Russian troops. Sure. So this is a conflict really aimed at uh, deciding where the borders of Donbass are ultimately gonna be drawn. Yet it's been inflated into this millenarian battle in which Putin and Zelensky are caricatured as the, the great saintly leader of democracy and the brutal demonic figure who wants to conquer the world. So my, my reaction to this is, is not to propose a counter narrative or to suggest what the US should do. That's the next step. What I'd first like to ask is, couldn't we have an open debate? Isn't it at least possible to lift the intellectual no-fly zone and have a rational discussion of what's really at stake here. It's not that the people who feel promoting the Ukraine war uh, is a bad idea are losing or winning. It's that those people don't even have a voice. There is no platform for anybody in the mainstream media and much of the non-mainstream media who wants to ask fundamental questions about why we're involved in Ukraine. So. 
before we even get to figuring out whether we should change the policy or not, let's at least discuss what its strengths and weaknesses are. And that's becoming very difficult in the press today. Yeah. And those those attendant questions, I mean, two pop into my head that, uh, you know, how how is this how are we going to avoid nuclear catastrophe would be the first question I would I would also ask. And then and then also, I mean, a practical one, like what makes us think that we could win this war when. I mean, arguably, we haven't really been on the winning side of a war since World War II. And I mean, not to... Well, you forgot to... Grenada. We, we defeated okay. Grenada. I'm sorry. That was good. I forgot that, was, that. That, was a, that was a good hit. You know, Grenada <laughs> has almost as many people as could fill up the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. Gosh. And boy, we kicked them. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I did forget that. <laughs> so, yeah. Don't take away our credit. Right. I'm uh, so sorry. Oh. So, uh, it's true. Uh, the United States has a really poor record uh, in military conflicts. Uh, this is one, however, where we don't have to send our own troops. You know, first, it was considered a great advantage of the Afghanistan war over Vietnam that we weren't sending draftees. We were only sending volunteers. Now, this is even better. We don't have to send any human beings at all. Uh, so uh, in that sense, from our geopolitical standpoint, we're ready to keep it going to the last Ukrainian. Uh, you ask about nuclear weapons, which I really think is a, an important uh, piece of this story. Um, I'm, I see people now uh, trying to calm down fears about nuclear war and saying, the odds are very unlikely. Putin wouldn't do that. And if he did, we wouldn't respond. And I'm just wondering, what will I ever have the chance to tell them they were wrong or will we all be dead if they turn out to be wrong? Yeah. I mean, when you're calculating risks, you calculate partly uh, how likely something is to happen, but you also calculate how bad it's going to be if it does happen. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, there are some red lines in the Soviet military doctrine that's been carried forward into Russian military doctrine. And one of them is that, um, if defeat seems imminent in a serious way, uh, nuclear weapons shall be deployed. And this is a piece of doctrine that has been assimilated by the uh, Russian officer corps. It's not just one person. So uh, this is a real danger. And we should be asking ourselves, look at your children, your grandchildren, and, and ask yourself, is this worth it? Is this worth that kind of a risk? Yeah. I, I mean, to your point, I was talking to somebody who is admittedly much smarter than me, which is not a high bar to clear, but he is quite a bit smarter than me. And we were talking about a Substack article I wrote that included a link to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that say that we're closer to nuclear war than we've ever been. And part of what he said is, is exactly what he said. You know, I don't really think that's a, a real risk. <laughs> so, well, the, the nuclear scientists seem to think so. so. I'm going to I'm going to defer to their to their uh, fears on that personally. Um, but yeah, OK, so I know we, we don't have a ton of time left, so I want to get to a couple more questions um, and I'm sure we could get lost in uh, end of the world discussion um, in this because that's uh, I laugh and you laugh, but uh, wow, we're close. Um, so. I, the most common and infuriating and lazy pushback 
that that I've heard and I've I've received um, arguing for peace is is the tired comparisons to Chamberlain and appeasement deal with Hitler in thirty eight. Um, is this a valid comparison? <laughs> Asked rhetorically. Um, I mean, is advocating for peace in any way like um, appeasing Adolf Hitler? Uh, no, but let me give you two answers <laughs> to that question. Um, one is we're asking for a diplomatic solution that will be verified and signed by all parties. It's not giving away something. We're talking about ending fighting and then negotiating. Nobody's trying to impose anything. We're just trying to stop the killing until we can reach some kind of a resolution. I mean, even in Korea, they decided to freeze the war. Now, it's it's really awful that that war is still officially open, but at least nobody has been shot. Uh, now, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the Neville Chamberlain thing, too, yeah, yeah. because uh, I never write an article advocating diplomacy, particularly with Russia or with China, without at least one I'm coming sure uh, one comment. Thank you, Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> so Neville Chamberlain, of course, was the British prime minister who negotiated with Hitler and made a deal with him that Hitler later broke. So this uh, episode is now used to dis uh, discredit diplomacy. Overall, it's 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 the proof that diplomacy never works. Now, the real fact is that Neville Chamberlain made a mistake in, to make that agreement in Munich in 1938. It doesn't mean that diplomacy is always bad. And I want to take it one step further, because because now you're uh, tapping into one of my uh, secret fantasies. I want to start a move, movement or, or a committee or an organization, and it's going to be the committee for the abolition of World War II analogies. <laughs> I'd like to join. I don't want to hear he's the next Hitler anymore. I don't yeah. want to hear it could be another Pearl Harbor. Uh, or another one, of course, is that after World War II, what happened? We had a 100% victory, a big parade, and everybody went home, and we won and they lost. We're still imagining that happens, but that's very rare. That doesn't happen in war. That's not going to happen in this war. So. I want to start a movement to just ban all references <laughs> to World War II. And maybe we can start using references to episodes that are more recent that actually do have relevance mm -hmm. to what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, countries that have been destroyed by outside intervention and ripped apart without any possible benefit to any side. So again, the motivation in Washington is cheer them on so they'll wound Russia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for proof of that, obviously, I'm going to link all these articles. But um, in your proxy war article, you you mentioned, you know, we're currently occupying a third of Syria. We're we've we've done this all over the place. These military misadventures, and like you said, that's that has a lot more to do with right now than, um, yeah, that that um, I'm I'm in your club on that. Um, if, if membership is open, let me know. Um, okay, so really, my Last question, and I think probably the most, um, the biggest question that I have in all this is where is the peace movement? I mean, do you see hope? Like you mentioned earlier, um, the only opposition to the initial $40 billion package uh, to Ukraine and and the subsequent ones um, is really the far right kind of um, nut jobs on the, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I mean, it's, it's people that you're, that 
I mean, I think rightly, I think twice in <laughs> agreeing with them <laughs> on on things that they say. Uh, but but I think there's this hubris that makes us think that if someone is crazy or someone is a you know a bad person, then they're wrong a hundred percent of the time. And I, I think that's kind of a going back to this black and white childish way to look at the world. Um, it's a really childish way to look at the world. And um, so, I mean, there's these recent efforts um, to combine elements of of the right, elements of the left um, in, in an anti-war movement. Um, there's the Rage Against the War Machine um, rallies. I don't know if you, if you saw much of that um, a, a month or so ago, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious where you see hope and like where, where are people moving in the right direction and um, yeah, how do we, how do we become a part of that from what you're seeing? You're absolutely right that um, what we thought was the peace movement doesn't seem really agitated about the situation in Ukraine at all. In fact, some people are shockingly enthusiastic about it, who you would expect would be thinking very differently. Yeah. It's truly remarkable and, and very depressing. Um, so uh, I think there are some exceptions. I should point it out. There are a number of organizations. You mentioned one of them, Code Pink is always yeah. out there. There's also a very interesting think tank now in Washington uh, called the Quincy Institute. Uh, just about every think tank in Washington has traditionally been either neocon or liberal interventionists. So they all basically want to crash around the world but yeah. for slightly different reasons. <laughs> uh, the Quincy Institute has started to push back against that. And they hold uh, discussions and they're trying to promote a more restrained foreign policy. They have a uh, web journal called Responsible Statecraft, which is where that article about uh, that, that I wrote, uh, that you mentioned at the beginning, appeared. So that, I think, is something in Washington that at least is trying to uh, counter the, the narrative, but but it's very small in comparison to the power of what they call the foreign policy blob. Now, that said, I do think there are some other interesting things going on, and they're mainly going on outside of Washington. When you look at public opinion surveys, they consistently find rising, not only rising skepticism about Ukraine war, but a rising sense that things are going so badly in the United States that we shouldn't be worried about what happens everywhere in the world. And we shouldn't be trying to figure out which parties deserve to be in the government of Syria and which don't deserve. And how should Venezuela be ruled? Maybe we should start looking inside. So I think uh, that sentiment is out there. And that's the reason you have Republicans starting to sound like anti-war people, because this sensing that this is what the electorate wants uh, now, that change in the American public uh, has not penetrated into Washington, but I think it is out there. Um, and the one other thing that I find uh, distressing and that maybe if it changed could be a basis uh, for something positive is the quiescence of all these social movements that have emerged in recent years to protest against conditions inside the United States. Mm. Uh, it seems to me that those movements, uh, wonderful as they may be at home, have failed to grasp a, a very essential fact. And that is all the money to pay for everything they want for a free community college and Medicare for all. It's in the 
military budget. It's a mm -hmm. trillion dollars. So I don't think these people realize that when they're always being asked, how are you going to pay for that? Yeah, there yeah. is an answer. But you have to tie your struggle for change in the United States with the idea that that change is only going to come with a reordering of priorities. We have real problems inside the United States. And that makes it all the more difficult for us to go out in the world and say, come on our side, because we are the model that you'd all want to emulate. So uh, I think there is a growing feeling that uh, we should concentrate on our problems at home. And I, I, I hope that people who promote the idea of social change at home will become more aware of the connection between what they're hoping for and the need to bring America back home from 800 military bases and involvement uh, in every continent, in every country. That's what's sucking up the money that we could use to turn America into the model for the world that we like to imagine that it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, boy, it's so many other questions on that, but I, I, that's probably the best place to leave it. I've got a bunch of other directions to go, but um, Stephen, I'm, I'm again so thankful for your voice. Um, you have a, a very large uh, voice, and um, and the fact that you're using it um, the way that you are, I think, is says all about you. And we need more um, folks like you. And and again, I'm I'm grateful for you. StephenKinzer.com is where you can find uh, links to his work and. Uh, do you want to give us, uh, maybe point us in a direction of something in this world that might be helpful, it's especially, you know, this one more thing is just, um, as you said, the saturation of, um, of journalism it, it is so one-sided right now. You mentioned um, the Quincy Institute. Is there maybe one other place that, that you can think of um, folks finding good information um, right now? Uh, yeah, so you mentioned Chris Hedges. He has his own Substack column, my old uh, next door neighbor in Managua once. There's a yeah. wonderful site called Tom Dispatch that I like. Uh, there's Consortium News. There's some out there. It's difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff. But as you, you mentioned, my website, stephenkinzer.com, all my columns go on that website. So um, I'm glad to be able uh, to have that voice that you just talked about, but thank you for providing uh, a platform for it too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll, uh, we'll hopefully, hopefully speak soon and uh, until then, stay safe. Okay, thanks. All right, thanks. And that's the show. Thank you so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We have some great content for you coming up soon. In the meantime, go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review, tell a friend, support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.